not a terribly fussy liturgist as far as Episcopalians go. I like my church worship to be clean and well thought out, but I don't get really all that wrapped up in the details. I am, however, a hardcore anti-Alleluiaist when it comes to Lent. Hearing the word Alleluia in that 40-day period feels like nails on a chalkboard, the, the neighbor's dog barking at 2 a.m., and a crick in my neck all wrapped up together tied with a bow of poison ivy. We all have our things, and the purity of Alleluia is mine. It just makes Easter morning all that much sweeter to have foregone the sound of that lovely word for so long. As a side note, I'm well aware that someone in this room is going to remember this little nugget about me and knock me down with an Alleluia 11 months from now in the middle of Lent 2015. Let me assure you that messing with the clergy during Lent is neither kind nor wise. (laughs) Consider yourself warned. I recently read an excerpt from a little-known German theologian, Balthasar Fischer. He compares the word Alleluia to the babbling of a child. It's a Hebrew word, it is of Hebrew origin, but it's been passed down through our liturgical traditions untranslated. It's a cry of joy, something akin to praise the Lord. And we hear it most often in the Psalms. Fisher continues, No translation explains why the church chose and retained this word from the Hebrew language of prayer in order to express her Easter jubilation, even though in later centuries her own children did not understand the meaning. I think the church meant to say, In the presence of the mystery that we celebrate on Easter, the mystery of our redemption, Our usual, unintelligible vocabulary is inadequate. When faced with the superabundant mercy of God, we can only stammer in amazement like children. I love the idea of well-appointed, perfectly coiffed Episcopalians stammering in amazement like children. I love this description. I also love Fisher's Alleluia idea because it takes us all the way back to our friend in this morning's gospel. For centuries, he has been called the doubter. Thomas didn't believe that his friends had seen Jesus in the flesh. He named the limits of his faith. He knew exactly how far his mind could stretch. To be fair to Thomas, the rest of the disciples didn't believe Mary's tale of seeing Jesus. And they had not been lumped into a giant heap of doubters. Thomas stands there alone, all by himself. We've known Thomas as the doubter for so long, it's hard for us to think of this story in any other way. We've been told our whole Christian lives not to be like Thomas. Believe without seeing because we know that evidence of the resurrection is everywhere. But if we shift our focus instead when we read this story, what if we 
we quit scrutinizing Thomas so hard and play, pay closer attention to Jesus? What if we put down those stones we are so willing to throw and listen for a minute to what Jesus actually says to reprimand Thomas? Nothing. Nothing. He says nothing to reprimand his disciple, the isolated doubter. What does he say? Put your finger here. We don't believe in a God who withholds evidence to teach us a lesson. Our God is not pedantic or petty. Jesus did not say, You don't believe this completely bizarre, hitherto unheard of, miraculous God event without touching me, Thomas? Then you don't deserve to be my disciple. Off you go. Put your finger here. Jesus provides what Thomas needs to believe. Jesus recognizes Thomas's limitation and he meets him there. Put your finger here. It's here where Thomas would throw in his own alleluias. It isn't in our text. But here, Thomas is indeed faced with the superabundant mercy of God. I can only imagine that his quoted, My Lord and my God, is a rewriting of what he actually said, which may or may not have sounded a lot like, Alleluia. Because what else do you say when your doubt has been dissolved? When your tested faith is confirmed? When grace overrides doctrine and your Messiah is standing in front of you saying, put your finger here. Alleluia. Alleluia, because that is what Jesus brings out of us. Alleluia. And if we keep focusing on Jesus rather than glowering at poor Thomas, the next part changes too. Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. This has long been read as a condemnation of Thomas, the one who doubted. But again, Jesus never actually condemns him. He just confirms Thomas's proclamation. Oh, good, Thomas, you finally get it. There's no curse. There's no blame. But there is a promise. There is hope. Remember, in that room, everyone has seen Jesus. They have all dined with him. They've all seen his wounds. Jesus is not blessing the gathered disciples around him for their blind faith. Remember, every one of them falls into the same category as Thomas. They have the privilege of basing their faith on things seen. So who is Jesus talking about? Us. Jesus is talking about us, all of us, who throughout history, have struggled to figure out what our own boundaries of belief are. Jesus is calling us 
blessed. We who have decided to believe despite not being able to put our own hands on that broken body. Jesus is naming us as blessed because we continue to wrestle with our own demons of doubt and yet somehow many days still make it back to a place of faith. Shaky or rock solid, muddy or crystal clear, we get there. I have days, and I know many of you too, when I wish I could see that body and hear, put your finger here and have all my shadows of doubts erased. Some days I would trade places with Thomas in a heartbeat. Unfortunate nickname and all. But somehow, by the massive grace that comes only from God, I have not seen, and yet I have come to believe. I am blessed. And my response to this? It's the response of the ages. It is the babble of children. It is the proclamation of jubilee. Alleluia. Alleluia.